So this week we've been talking about uh, the case for God in the world of science. Uh, we've been talking about a number of different things, and, and the first night we talked about naturalism specifically, and I want to hear from you, uh, how do we define naturalism? What is naturalism? Can anyone tell me, define what that is for us? Say it again. Something that makes sense to natural man and you can figure out how. Okay, something that makes, makes sense to natural man, something that you can figure out. Uh, the root idea of naturalism is that there's no supernatural. Um, all there is is nature. All there is is what we can, can, uh, can, can gather with our five senses, and that's it. There's no supernatural. Um, now, what, what causes naturalism, or why, why would somebody, how could somebody get to that point where they would, where they would believe in naturalism, where they would get to the place where they would believe that there is no God. How, 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 how might somebody get to there? Get to that point? Yeah, that's a big one. We haven't, we haven't hit on that yet, and I'd like to uh, sometime in the next couple of nights. Maybe, maybe there's something that they feel God has done to them. Um, we talked a little bit about how when our when our understanding of God shifts from him as transcendent, as all-knowing, as all-powerful, and that shifts to more of a deistic belief where God just kind of set things in motion and walked away, and how that, that sets us on the path to eventually believing that there is no God. And, and then we see something like evolution. We begin to say, well, you know, we can understand where we've come from. So we really don't need God to explain where we've come from. Uh, so why, why do we need the belief in God at all. Now, last thing we, t- we touched specifically on evolution. What are some of the things that we talked about um, in the idea of evolution and, and uh, ways, some of the challenges with the theory of evolution? What are some of the things that we talked about last evening? Matter. Say it again. Matter. matter? Yeah. Okay. And what about it? What about matter? What do we talk about specifically? There were three things that we talked about specifically. The problem of origins, the moral argument, and complexity. Now somebody, somebody explained to me the problem of origins. What's the challenge of origins uh, with, the, with the theory of evolution, with, Big Bang, with the Big Bang theory? What are some of the challenges with origins that, that we face there or that we see there? Okay, there still has to be an origin. Yeah, at the very basic level, there has to be something that started it all. Uh, you know, where did knowledge come from? Where did logic come from? Where did understanding come from? Um, through, the, through the theory of evolution, uh, man can theorize, oh, we know where life has come from. We know where we've come from. But even if that were true, even if that were true, which it's not, we know it's not, it's very obviously not, but even if it were true, where did knowledge come from? Where did, where did logic come from? And then another step beyond that, where did purpose come from and meaning and those kinds of things, intangible things that we can't really touch and feel and that we don't understand? How, how can we begin uh, to believe what our mind tells us if our mind is just the product of mindless and unguided processes over millions of years? Those are some of the, the questions that we should be asking. Then, there, then there's the moral argument, the moral problem. And what, is, what is that problem when it comes to the theory of evolution? What's the issue with morals?
yeah, nothing's wrong or right. There is no God. If there is no basis, no foundation for your morals, there is no right or wrong. And, and therefore, you can do whatever you want. Now, what I find interesting about that, every person in the world, no matter what they believe about God, no matter what, what religion they ascribe to, no matter what they believe about anything else, believes in a right and a wrong. Every person, without exception. Even if someone were to say, I don't believe in right or wrong, I don't believe in good or evil, I don't know where they've come from, I don't understand them, I don't believe them, that person still believes in right or wrong. That person still believes in justice, in judgment, and believes that, that uh, justice should be measured out. Now, one of the benefits uh, of, of the world as we understand it, of God, one, one of the pros, one of the, 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 uh, the benefits of, under, of our understanding of God is that justice will be meted out fully and completely at some point in time. Probably not in this life, and in a lot of cases, not in this life. Uh, but justice will be served. Uh, we talked a little bit about complexity, and we'll get into that here just briefly in a few minutes. But I asked three questions at the end of last evening, and I know no good teacher should ever ask three questions at the end of, right at the end of a session. You should only ask one. But I asked three, and I'm curious if anyone can remember any of those three questions. What were the three questions that I asked at the end of last evening? Say it again. Yeah, why do human beings suffer? And specifically, why would an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good God allow humans to suffer, or allow suffering of any kind, whether it's animals, humans, any of his creation? And that's, I find that to be an important part of it because God knows everything, and God controls everything, and God is good. And so when you add that all together, there should be no suffering, right? If you take that all to its logical conclusion... There should be no suffering. And so that's something that we have to grapple with as, as Christians, as believers in God. Uh, but it's also something that I think we need to be prepared to talk about. What was another question that I asked towards the end of last evening? What do you do with faith? Yeah, what about faith? You know that faith is really dangerous? Faith is really crazy, if you think about it. Faith is the idea that a ship captain, I told this story towards the end of last evening, I'll just say it again, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Faith is the idea that a ship captain would say, you know what, I'm not going to check the ship. We're just going to go out to sea. I'm going to take everyone with me. We're just going to go out to sea. And whatever happens, happens. God's going God's to take care of us. And, and we don't need to worry about it. That's faith. Now, I want you to, to keep thinking about that. And, and we'll, we'll uh, I, I was going to uh, talk a little bit about these questions tonight, but I think we'll do it either tomorrow night or the final night. But I want you to keep thinking about those questions because those are relevant questions. The reason that I ask them is not because I doubt your faith or your belief in God, but because it's very likely that somebody will ask you those questions at some point. And you should be thinking about them and be prepared to answer them. One one of the challenges uh, that we talked about just briefly is, is in a culture like ours, we're not often challenged in that way in our thinking. And so I think it's good to be challenged and to think through some of these questions. Does anyone remember the third question that I asked? And it kind of ties in a little bit with the second question. Good. Yeah, why would an all-powerful God have to kill himself, take care of a sin problem that in his foreknowledge he knew was going to be an issue and that he knew what people were going to do? Why would, why would he have to do that? And again, we kind of know the answer to that to some degree. We kind of We've probably kind of processed through with that. But that's, that's a real challenge when people look at the Christian God. 
It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's crazy that an all-powerful God would die, would allow himself to go through what Jesus went through. Uh, and, and we'll uh, hopefully hit on that. We may have time this evening, but probably in the coming evenings. I wanted to touch just a little bit on the idea of complexity. Uh, if I can get this thing in the right place. So we talked about this just briefly last evening as time was wrapping up. Um, but the idea of complexity, and the question that we would ask is, what is one example of a, ge- of a genetic mutation that results in the increase of information to the genetic evolutionary process? The reason why this question is so challenging to the idea of evolution is because the idea of evolution is that the simple evolved into the more complex. Now, in order to go from simple to more complex, you need to add information. In other words, to go from, to go from, a, uh, from an amoeba to a human, somewhere along the line, you've got to add more information. You've got to add information f- to form the arms, to form our, the thinking process, to form the brain, to form the, the, the legs, et cetera, et cetera. More information needs to be added. And so I've, I've watched uh, some evolutionists kind of discuss this. And what's interesting is that there is, there is no answer to this. There is no answer to the complexity problem because it's never been observed that a mutation has added complexity to life. A mutation always takes away information or takes away complexity. Now, it's obvious, like I said, that if you believe in evolution, it's obvious that there's a general trend toward complexity. Uh, But there's a debate among evolutionists over whether this this trend towards complexity is found in all species or just in a certain type of species. And there's also a question of whether it's happening today. And the reason why there's a question of whether it's happening today is because, number one, it's never been observed, and number two, it's never been witnessed in history. And, and we can move on and talk a little bit about missing links between species. And again, this is critical. If we're going to believe that the simple became more complex, then we should find fossils of all kinds of missing links between monkeys and humans and between fish and, and reptiles, et cetera, et cetera, and on down the line. But this is a challenge, and, and, and if, you, if you're familiar with, with the news and, and you, uh, you're, you're up to date on current events, you know, every once in a while, you know, you see something about this missing link that was found. Uh, somewhere between a monkey and a, and a human typically is, is where that, that link is placed. But oftentimes, those links are either fabricated or they're just taken out of, uh, taken out of the, the context of the fossil record. Um, and so that's one of the challenges with evolution. Again, the challenge of complexity. So the three challenges that we talked about, the problem with origins, the moral argument, and the challenge with complexity. Uh, but we're going to move on this evening and talk about uh, creationism and the belief in God. And I call this evening finding the source of science. Because what I find interesting, I talked a little bit about this last evening, is that when we look at scientific discovery, when we look at what scientists have discovered, particularly um, in the last several hundred years, it originated primarily with Christian scientists. And, and the reason I believe that that happened is because Christian scientists expected to find law and order in, in their experiments. They expected to, to see things to be the same every time they did the same experiment. And that allowed them, uh, that allowed the explosion in scientific discovery. Now, I'm going to show you a couple, of, uh, a couple of pictures here, and I want you to tell me what this is 
and what this represents. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you see this picture? Besides airplane, besides bomber, or those kinds of things, what's, what's a word that comes to your mind when you see this? What does this represent to us or hopefully not to us as much as our society? What does this represent to the American people? Power. War. Design, okay. Structure. All right, and what I'm thinking of is power or control. Power or control. When we see our armed forces flying or when we see tanks going down the street or that kind of thing, videos of that or whatever, that represents power and control. Now, what will this save us from? And, and again, I, we want to think, I'm, I'm, I'm shifting here. Let's, let's think like, America, like a typical American would think. What will this save us from? Communism. Communism. What else? Terrorists. What else? Dictators. North Korea. So we've formed our armed forces so that we can control to save us from our enemies. Okay? What is this and what does it symbolize? What's the word that you think of when you see this besides iPhone and apps and technology? Go ahead. What was that? Technology, yeah, there we go, all right. What else? What do we use this for? What's, what's the word that comes to your mind? Connection, Connection yes. Communication, yep. Information. Say it again. Information. Information, yes, yep. Relationship, purpose, entertainment. And what will this do for us or what will this give us? And this could go a variety of different directions and that's fine. What, what, will this, what do we believe, what do humans believe that this will do for us? Save us from boredom. Oh, yeah, okay. We could, we could go off on a bunny trail on that for a while. Yeah, yeah. How many of you uh, staying in a group of people and there's nobody talking and so what's everyone do? Pull out your phone. Okay, it's save us from boredom. What else? Knowledge, Knowledge. yes. So what, what will this do for us? Why do we want this? More efficiently, absolutely. Financial success, yep. And I took this a little bit different direction. I said purpose uh, because so much of our relationships can be wrapped up in that. For better or for worse, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but we can find purpose in that. What about this? It's a car, it's red, it's probably fast. What does it represent? Say it again. Speeding ticket, okay. Some personal experience there, perhaps. <laughs> Somebody said something up front. Transportation, yep. Prestige. Luxury. Yep, yep. And what will this give us? Status. Transportation, yeah. Tried and true. We see the difference of the generations here. <laughs> What else will this give us? Younger generation, what will this give you? <laughs> Say it again. Wealth. Okay. Health, death, all right. The idea of that, I thought it was happiness. We expect these kinds of things to bring us happiness. And maybe when you see this, you think of Amazon. I don't know. Um, now, I want us to think about this. These are all technology 
And these are all things that have been brought about by the explosion in the scientific world. As we've been able to do science and been able to, to see laws and been able to, to explain, <clears throat> excuse me, explain how things work, we've been able to build these new technologies. Now, we're going to look at something a little different here. One of the things that I believe that scientists think about when they see what we've created as humans is that ultimately the idea of naturalism and these things that we've built from science can save us from this, from the Bible. Now, why would we want to be saved from the Bible? Uh, what does the Bible represent to the world, to unbelievers? What does the Bible represent? Justice. Say it again. Justice, Justice yes. Intolerance. Wow. Yeah. More and more, it's representing intolerance. Heaven and hell. Say it again. Heaven and hell. Heaven and hell. Yep. That we're, needy. that we're needy. That's no good. We don't want that. What else does it represent? Uncomfortable truth. uncomfortable truth. Yeah. We heard some of that from Chris the last couple of evenings. Some uncomfortable truth. Reality of eternity. That there is a God. Yep. Ultimately, I believe the Bible represents to the world foolishness. And actually, uh, 1 Corinthians talks about that. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 29. I'll just read through this because I believe this gives us a little bit of an insight into the whole understanding of science and, and how our culture is viewing science. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 1 Starting in verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. And that was one of the questions that I asked last night and again earlier this evening. The cross is complete foolishness. It's complete foolishness. And I don't care how much you wear it around your neck or how much you decorate with it. It's foolishness because it represents suffering. The cross represents suffering. And we're now, you know, several thousand years away from that, and so we kind of tend to, to decorate it and embellish it <clears throat> a bit. But it's foolishness to the world. It's foolishness, what it, what it actually represents. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I think... Kind of in a nutshell, some of the things that we've been talking about this week. 
Turn with me also to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, again, we'll start reading verse 18 and read probably to the end of the chapter. Now, there's two things in this passage. uh, As I read, I want you to be thinking about, see if you can figure out what they are. There's two things, two ways in which we can see God or know God or two ways in which God is revealed to us or two ways in which we can understand God, specifically in this passage starting in verse 18. And and I I want you to tell me what they are when we're finished reading here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. God's not hiding it. God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Let me read that again. I think that's a key verse. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, by the things that are created, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And I believe we're part of the day. We are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their, their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And we'll stop there. What are the two things, the two ways in which we can understand God that it talks about in this passage? Nature, creation, that's one. What's the other one? The other one might, might not be quite as obvious. Okay, the eternal power in God had, and I, again, I believe that's linked with creation. I find that verse so interesting, that when we see what God has made, let's look at that again, verse 20. The invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So we clearly see them. We understand them by what is made, even his eternal power and Godhead. We can can witness his eternal power and Godhead all around us so that we are not without excuse. The second thing I believe, second way this passage talks kind of uh, maybe not quite as as obvious about is, is the conscience. Our knowledge of right and wrong, our understanding of morals. Uh, right, wrong, good, evil, those kinds of things. We can understand and know God and know who he is and know that there is a God through the conscience. So by those two things, every man is without excuse, Romans says. Particularly through creation, there is no man that has an excuse. And then earlier in the chapter, it talks about the gospel and talks about the importance of, of scripture and how we also get to know God through scripture as well. And so the question that we have before us is, do science and God mix? And here's an argument uh, that's, that's uh, often used by scientists today. Some scientists make the argument today that goes something like this. So first of all, they look at young earth cre- creationists, which is what we are. Approximately 6,000 years is what we believe. Uh, and they say that we are ignoring science since science proves evolution. So if you start, if your foundation 
is that science that we can observe proofs of evolution, and you start with that, this is where you end up. Therefore, we as young earth creationists are ignoring science since science proves evolution. Science is what has given us technology to live a better life and to stay ahead of the rest of the world. Some of those images that, that we looked at, this, that's what science does for us. Science has given us a technology to, number one, live a better life, and number two, stay ahead of everyone else so that we're better than them. <clears throat> science gave us weapons for our military, the iPhone, the car. Science will save us from global warming or help us get to Mars if global warming comes, if global warming cannot be stopped. And, and there's a very active attempt. We, we may laugh at this, but there's a very active attempt by humans to get to Mars before we're completely wiped out here. But that's, that's what happens when you believe there is no God. When you start with the foundation of evolution and you have to save yourself, that's the kind of things that come out of that belief. Science will also save us from our enemies and other nations. And hopefully, eventually, science will ultimately save us from death itself. And therefore, science replaces God in the mind of a lot of people. Because at the end of the day, these are the things that we are to receive from God alone. Salvation from death is from God alone. Being saved from our enemies is from God alone, whether, in the, whether it's in this world or in the next. You know, being saved from something like global warming, which by the way, that is, that is scriptural, isn't it? Global warming? Sure it is. Yeah. Yeah, this earth isn't going to be here forever. Um, and so God is the one that saves us from that. And so if we can create and develop technology to such a high level, we can now replace God with that. That's the attempt that's being made. Now, if you take this a step farther, therefore, since Christians ignore science, their worldview is very threatening to our nation's well-being, but more importantly, to the survival of humans. That's where we're at. We are standing in the way, supposedly, we are standing in the way as believers in God, as believers in Christ, we're standing in the way of our nation's well-being and to the survival of humans as a whole. And if you don't, if you don't believe that there's people that believe that, uh, take a look at the debate between uh, Ken Ham and Bill Nye. Bill Nye's primary point there, the primary point that he was trying to get across to the American people is that creationists are dangerous to our society and they need to be stopped. We need to keep them out of our education system. We need to keep them, we need to keep them from, from saying what they believe. We need to make them be quiet because they are dangerous to our society. That was his main argument. And if you don't believe me, watch it again. I, f I found it to be very, very interesting. That was his central argument that Christians or believers in uh, young earth creationism are dangerous to our society. Now, I believe that Ken Ham did a relatively good job of explaining the difference between observable science and, quote, historical science. And we'll get into more detail with that tomorrow evening. Now, we talked a little bit, uh, I don't remember who it was. Somebody made the comment about miracles in science. I asked the question, I think it was last evening, if, if, uh, if the Bible ever contradicts science. Um, and the question that the question that I have is, does, does God just randomly jump in and perform magic in the midst of regular science at any time? That's, that's one of the challenges that scientists will bring to us is they'll say, well, you know, you believe in God because there's some things you can't explain. And there's some truth to that. But it's frustrating to scientists that you would believe in a force that at any time can just, 
can just come in and just make something happen that is unexpected and doesn't follow the regular laws of science. I don't know how many of you uh, read C.S. Lewis, but I found his illustration on this to be very interesting and very helpful. And he says it's some, something to this extent. He used a little bit different words, but something to this ex- extent. If I put $10 and $10 into a drawer and I come back three hours later and there's $5 there, I don't say that the laws of mathematics have been broken. I say the laws of Pennsylvania have been broken because somebody from outside of the system has reached in and obstructed and, and taken something out of the system. And that's what miracles are. You see, miracles don't break the laws of nature. Miracles don't break the laws of nature. Mir- the way we need to understand miracles is that God is outside of nature and God can reach down. It's not a closed system. Na- it's not nature and that's all we have. It's not a closed system. God can reach down and reach into his creation and do with it as he pleases. And I'm going to read this uh, from John Lennox in the article, Science and Faith, Friendly Allies, Not Hostile Enemies. Um, He says it like this, and I found this to be very, very helpful in my understanding of miracles. The laws of nature describe to us the regularities on which the universe normally runs. The laws of nature are the regularities on which the universe normally runs. God, who created the universe with those laws, is no more their prisoner then the thief is a prisoner of the laws of arithmetic in the story that I just told. The thief is not a prisoner to the laws of arithmetic. He didn't break those laws. And God is not, and God is not um, a prisoner to his laws either. Like the drawer that I talked about, the universe is not a closed system. God can, if he wills, do something special like raise Jesus from the dead. Note that my knowledge of the laws of arithmetic tell me that a thief has stolen the money. Similarly, if we did not know the law of nature that dead people normally remain in their tombs, we should, never resurre- we should never recognize a resurrection. We could certainly say that it is the law of nature that no one rises from the dead by natural processes, and that is true. Nobody rises from the dead by natural processes. But Christians do not claim that Jesus rose from the dead by natural processes, but by supernatural power. The laws of nature cannot rule out that possibility. The only way that you can rule out the possibility of the resurrection is to sit by every tomb, every hour of every day for all time to make sure it didn't happen. That's the only way it can be rolled out. There's no other way that you can roll out the possibility of a resurrection. I want to take just a, a historical look at science. I'm going to go through this rather quickly. We just have a few minutes left. Science historically has been dominated by Christian men or men who are not Christians but believe that there is a God. So that's the foundation of science. Uh, Copernicus is one. Uh, Johannes Kepler, you'll probably recognize some of these, some of these men. Blaise Pascal, uh, Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, Gregor Mendel. Uh, I find this to be very interesting. Gregor Mendel worked in genetics, and he was a monk. He lived in the same time period as Darwin. And he studied a lot of the same things as Darwin. Like he would, he would study, you know, he studied heredity and, and things like recessive and dominant traits. So if you, you know, if you have uh, two different peas and one is green and one is yellow and and you mate them, then, you know, do you get green or do you get... Yeah, he, he kind of studied those things. He studied how species can change over time. And that's also what Darwin studied. But he came out with a completely different conclusion from the same studies. And we'll get into that a little bit more tomorrow evening. Now, I want you to, to remember the three questions that we talked about 
at the beginning of this evening. Uh, and if I can find them real quick, I will, I should have them memorized. I'm asking you to remember what they are. Three questions were, the question of faith. Faith is dangerous. What do we do with that? Uh, why would an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God allow suffering? And why would an all-knowing, all-powerful, an all-knowing, all-powerful God have to kill himself for the atonement of sin for the people that he created and for the sin that he knew that they would commit? Was there not some other way? So keep thinking about those questions, and we'll touch on them either tomorrow evening or the last evening. And we will wrap up with that.